From the historic Cosmic Potato Studios, welcome to That Star Trek Podcast. This is your place for detailed analysis and speculation of all things Trek. Now, on with the show. Hey everybody and welcome to That Star Trek Podcast. My name is Sean Ray and this week, or over the next several weeks, I have decided that I'm going to bring back some old episodes of the prime direction this is a podcast that i did for a while a couple years ago a few years ago where i interviewed star trek fans about their fandom had some great conversations uh lasted several years and then uh scott actually took over as host for a while and uh the 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 show is not being recorded presently but i've decided that i'm going to release the old episodes as that Star Trek podcast uh, supplemental episodes to give you guys a little something extra to listen to if you haven't heard them before. Going forward, there may be some new interviews, but they'll be they'll be coming here to that Star Trek podcast. There won't be a separate podcast for the Prime Direction. It'll just it'll be part of this this podcast. So uh, I want you to check these out. This first episode is an interview that I did with my good friend Rick that you hear all the time on stuff all over the network. And it's a few years old. So keep that in mind. We talk about some things that uh, may be a bit dated. So, you know, keep in mind that it was 2015, I think, when we had this uh, original conversation. Also keep in mind, this is a completely edited episode with music included and i'm not i don't have the original source files so you're going to hear the music as it came out on the show it may be a bit jarring at the end when you hear theme music coming up over the talking and then it changes into our regular uh closing music so just keep that in mind but enjoy this episode thanks Hey everybody and welcome to The Prime Direction. My name is Sean Ray and my guest tonight is Rick Tatro. Rick, how are you tonight? I'm groovy, thanks. Uh, So Rick is a teacher in St. Petersburg, Florida and he is the host of several shows on the Simply Syndicated Network, most notably Movie News. What are the other shows that you do, Rick? I do The Admiral's Table, which is an offshoot of Starbase 66. Uh, may it rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> I do The Movie News. I do The Seven Chevron, which is our Stargate SG-1 podcast. Richard Smith and I do Ray Guns and Go-Go Boots, which is a retrospective of uh, 50, or 60s, 70s, and 80s science fiction TV shows. We've got a Babylon 5 show called White Star 5 that we do very occasionally. I think that's... All for now. I've got another one starting soon, but that doesn't count yet. So Okay. All right. Well, this is episode one of The Prime Direction. And the goal for this show is it's a Star Trek show, but it's not necessarily about Star Trek. What this show is going to aim to do is to talk to a different person every episode. And that person is a fan of Star Trek 
whether it be a fan of the entire series of all the series or one particular series, but I'm going to talk to that person about how their fandom started, how it's affected their life, uh, and where their fandom is now. And I think it's pretty safe to say, I've talked to you for many, many hours on online. You're a pretty big, you've been a pretty big Star Trek fan your whole life. That's an understatement. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, before we actually start talking about your fandom, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about you know what your life was like growing up, where you uh, where you were from originally? Uh, well, uh, I was born in upstate New York, but I don't remember living there. We moved to uh, Connecticut when I was two, uh, and then lived in various cities in Connecticut uh, until I was twelve, and then we moved to Florida where I spent the remainder of my formative years. Uh, And then as an adult, I've bounced around the country, mostly on the East Coast-ish, never really getting any further west than Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, But but, uh, And I'm back in Florida, and I keep trying to get out of Florida (laughs) with little to no success. What was – were one of your parents in the military – uh, yeah, my dad. Well, my dad was in the Air Force when I was born. I was born on Plattsburgh Air Force Base. Um, so yeah, you can bust into any of my security questions now, folks. Uh, my <laughs> home. My, I was born in Plattsburgh, which is why I never answer that question anymore. <laughs> so, not that I've ever had to use security questions, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my dad was in the service, uh, but he only did one term, and then shortly after that, he and my mom split up, and so then it was just my brother and me. Uh, and my mom, uh, we'd see my dad, uh, every other weekend while we lived in Connecticut and then a couple times a year when we moved to Florida. Yeah. Uh, and then he passed away when I was 14, uh, which kind of sucked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> more for him than me, I suppose. But, uh, then, uh, well, my, uh, well, I don't know how deep you want to. <laughs> no, 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 that's <laughs> fine. I, yeah. It just, it kind of, it kind of mirrors me a little bit because, uh, I mean, my dad, my dad's still alive, but, um. He was in the Air Force when I was born. I was born on uh, Eglin Air Force Base in in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, lived there for a couple of years. I don't remember living there. I do remember a little bit of living in Columbus, Georgia, which is where he was stationed next, and that's where my brother was born. And then he was an X-ray tech at the hospital um, at those two bases. And then uh, when he got out of the service, we moved back to Birmingham, where my parents were from, and so... And been here ever since. <laughs> what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? That's a tough question. I've been trying to figure this out ever since you asked me to be on this show because I can't remember a time before I knew about Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, you didn't. You weren't watching it when it originally aired. You would be too young. Yeah, I was born in '64. It 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 premiered in '66. So. If it was on while I was in the room, there's no way I'd be aware of it. Right. Um, I do have a memory of when I was. Um, we took a vacation to Florida when I think I was. I think I was five years old, and I remember seeing what I now know to be the episode "The Empath" on the TV in our hotel room in, ironically, St. Petersburg. I don't know if that's irony, but anyway, <laughs> coincidentally, coincidentally, uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, we did the Disney World and then came over here right. to the Tampa St. Pete area and saw the sponge docks and all that stuff. And I got a terrible sunburn and I chased lizards and all the fun <laughs> things. Any, you know, normal 
North, uh, kid from the North when they get to Florida does. Um, but I remember seeing The Empath, which I, th- I, I checked it a few years back, and there's a good chance that it was during the summer rerun of that episode, which would have been the third season. Yeah. Um, so it probably was 1969. So I, th- I, you know, I cannot claim that I watched the show when it was on the air, but I think I caught a little bit of it. When do you remember becoming what what you would consider to be a fan of the show? The the earliest. Uh, well, I know that my dad got me into the show. I know that my dad uh, that that was something he and I did together was watching Star Trek. Uh, which that right there gives it a very, very important place in my, uh, in my development, in my life, in my heart, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I can't remember a single instance of us sitting down and watching it, even though I know that happened. Uh, the earliest that I can pinpoint was in a drugstore with my mom, uh, and I saw a book in the drugstore. So, you know, I had to be probably somewhere around eight or nine because I was reading maybe, maybe earlier. I don't know, maybe seven or eight. Unfortunately, my mom's not around for me to ask anymore. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the original series was novelized by an author named James Blish. Yeah. I remember they, they had those books in my school library when I was a kid. I don't remember if I ever read any of them, but they were basically just, weren't they just novelizations of the episodes? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first one I saw was uh, number three in the series, and uh, I actually still have that book in a box. It's on the on the cover is a picture of Kirk, Spock, and Uhura, and I lost my mind, and I begged my mom to buy it for me, and she did, and I read the crap out of that book, and then I made it my goal to collect the entire set. Now we're talking nineteen. 72 maybe 71 73 somewhere around there so you know ages before there was an internet that you know i didn't know about about i i couldn't go to a bookstore yeah i couldn't special order things and i i'm kind of glad i couldn't because that became sort of my quest as a as a child was anytime we would go to anywhere a grocery store a, a drug store anywhere that had books uh, it actually probably worked out well for my mom because I would go to where the paperback books were and just spend the entire time she was there scanning, trying to see if there were any more Star Trek books. Yeah. Uh, and it took me probably a good 10 years to finally collect all of them. How many are there? There were 12. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What is it about uh, about us as, as kids when we see a book version of a TV show and it just, I don't know, it just lights something up and, and it's like, it's not supposed to be a book or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, when I when I was growing up in the 90s, I think they had, well, 80s and 90s, they had, basically they came out with a novelization of every kid's movie that came out. Uh-huh. You know, so I would do the same thing. We would go to Walmart on the weekends. My mom would go shopping and I would go to the books and look at Mad Magazine and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and there would be, like, the novelization of Roger Rabbit or something like that. And, of course, I had to get it. And my mom yeah. hated it because it was, like, four or five bucks for the stupid little book, you know. <laughs> but that Well, that was one thing I've got to give my mom credit for. She never discouraged me from reading and, to my knowledge, never said no to a book. Now, there may have been, like, okay, you can only get one or two. Right. The entire section or something. Um, but... You also got to remember the video was way off yeah. at that time, too. So the only way that I could 
have access to the to the episodes when they weren't you know on TV in syndication and reruns were my books and I read every one of them over and over and over and over and over again um in fact sometimes I realize when I'm watching one of the TOS episodes like a couple birthdays ago my wife got me the uh the Blu-rays yeah got me the the TOS the the whole series on Blu-ray and so I've watched a bunch of them that I hadn't seen in years and I started to realize that while I thought I had seen a lot of these episodes over and over again the truth was I read the books over and over again yeah and the books were based on the scripts, the, the screenplays. Before they made the changes, yeah. Exactly. And so some things were different. Uh, you know, some things weren't, were, were changed during the production. And that that's actually been kind of fun because while there are no Star Trek episodes I've never seen, and sometimes I lament that a little bit, yeah. every now and then I'll come across some bit that I've never seen before. And it's just like, you know, finding a diamond in a pile of sand. It's just awesome. Yeah. Well, what do you think it was about that particular show that connected with you more than the other things that you were watching on TV? Because I know you were a, you were also a fan of like the Six Million Dollar Man, oh yeah, and things like that. <laughs> so, what was it about Star Trek that made you like it more than than the other things? I, I think it it had to be. Well, I've I've always loved uh, the the hard. I've, I've always been a fan of hard science fiction. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh. The the, the sword and sorcery stuff. I didn't even. Uh, get into until I was in high school. I didn't even think about it. I never even heard of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings or any of that stuff until I was in high school and friends of mine turned me on to it. Um, but I was always big into science. I remember watching the Apollo missions. Uh, I, I remember very, very, very dim memories of watching uh, uh, Apollo 11. Uh, I remember the big orange parachutes when they were splashing down. Um, you know, that always fascinated me. And Star Trek was it was a view of the future where all of this space stuff worked. Yeah. Where the path we seemed to be on was leading and it was leading to a future that was way cooler than anyone could ever imagine. Um, you know, at the time I was I was almost equally as an uh, as enamored with Lost in Space. But even as a kid, I knew it was not in any way realistic right uh you know it was much sillier it was but you know it had it was it was on a spaceship so of course i loved it lost in space kind of drifted away and you know uh years ago tried to watch it again and found that it's just it's it's a it's a silly you know comic book of a tv show and i'm not talking modern comics yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, whereas Star Trek, for all of its cartoonish colors and, and over-the-top actions and Kirk Fu and, and all that <laughs> stuff, yeah. a lot of its stories are very timeless. A lot of its, mo uh, a lot of its messages hold up, are, are as relevant, sometimes even more relevant today than they were in the 60s. Uh, you know, there were the, there were the occasional stumbles. There was the occasional pandering to pop culture at the time, space hippies, uh, <laughs> uh, and Chekhov. For the most part, Star Star Trek was a, a its own entity, and it it put forth a moralistic, yet not preachy. Again, for the most part, exciting adventure series that not only entertained but it also educated. Yeah. And not in a way that you even realized you were being educated. You know, my you know, I mentioned that my, my folks had split up and, and my mom was a single mom for a long time. Um, 
she also made a couple of bad choices, uh, and her second husband was an alcoholic who abused all of us. Mm. And at that time, and for quite a while afterwards, uh, cause, you know, I was it, my my story is nothing unique. You know, broken broken family, whatever you call it, dysfunctional family, right. broken home, bullied in school. I was, you know, the fat introverted kid, et cetera, et cetera. It's nothing, you know, a lot of us walk down that path. Right. But I had Star Trek to hang on to. You know, my holy trinity as a kid were uh, Jim West, Steve Austin, and Jim Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> but of those three, Kirk was prob- was really the father figure of that bunch. Because James West and Steve Austin were both pretty much lone wolves. You know, West had art. Well, do you, are you familiar with the Wild Wild West? A, a little bit, yeah. Okay. I know of it. Oh. Yeah, I saw the movie. <laughs> I know the movie's oh. terrible, but <laughs> we will not speak of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, James West had his partner, but aside from that, he was pretty much on his own. Steve Austin was, despite being an astronaut and a colonel. Uh, you know, and part of a, a, a secret spy organization. He was still also kind of a lone wolf. But Kirk was the head of a family. And William Shatner's peccadilloes notwithstanding, <laughs> James Kirk was such a role model for me. And so was Spock. Yeah. You know, I, in fact, I got in trouble with a, with, I had one girlfriend who was, <laughs> during one of our, our arguments, she got upset because I tend to use a lot of big words. <laughs> And she accused me of trying to make her sound stupid. And, you know, the the thought never occurred to me. It's just one of my primary linguistic influences growing up was Spock. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I... It's how I talk. It's how I think. I I catch myself doing that all the time. You know, I would watch Star Trek whenever it was on. You know, in today's days of high-def widescreen TVs and DVDs and Blu-rays and, and downloads and streaming, et cetera, et cetera. I, I hate to sound like the old man, but you kids really have no idea how good you've got it. Be- because I wa- a lot of my watching of Star Trek was on a little 13-inch black-and-white TV. The signal was coming from Channel 22 in Massachusetts, and so it wasn't coming in very clearly. For the longest time, whenever I would get to see Star Trek coming in clearly and on a color TV, it was it was like Dorothy stepping out from Kansas into the land of Oz. Oh yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I kinda I'm kinda the same way with the next generation because uh where I grew up, um the only channel that because next generation was in syndication and the only channel that ran it was what we call channel twenty one here in Birmingham. And at I didn't have cable. I don't even know if they had cable out where I lived in, in Vincent, Alabama, uh, which is about maybe 20 miles from here. But you would have to turn your antenna just right to, <laughs> to even be able to get the picture, much less a good picture. And then uh-huh. I remember uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was about 14 or 15. And when I would go over to my dad's house, he had cable. <laughs> so I would get to watch Star Trek, uh, the, you know, the next generation and, the picture was good, you know, I thought I was in heaven. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can relate. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, I remember when I was when I was really little, like maybe four, five, six, uh, my friends and I, you know, we would play Star Trek outside, you know. And it's it's really weird how memory works. Because 
I can remember. Now I know that our bridge was a bunch of chunks of, of broken concrete and our transporter room was a couple of tires that we found and our phasers were sticks. Uh, and I remember, you know, we would, <laughs> we would stand on the, on the tires and one of us, whoever got the, got, won the argument and got to be Kirk that day, um, you know, would yell energize. And then we would haul ass across the yard, each of us going <laughs> while we were running. And then we'd, we'd get to where the, 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 the planet was and we'd all get back into our positions and materialize. And, you know, I know that I, I can remember what it looked like from a, uh, you know, what this had to be. But in my, my inner five-year-old sees the Enterprise. We sees that we built the bridge in this. And it, you ever seen where like a bunch of trees come together and they sort of make a cave in between the trees yeah. of branches? Well, that was that was our bridge. And that was also our, you know, our spaceship and submarine right. or whatever it had to be. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I remember, you know, we, we didn't have uniforms, but damn, do I remember seeing our uniforms and, and <laughs> yeah. it just, uh, it was a, a magical time. And it was a show that never made you feel bad about yourself. It never made you depressed about what was to come. And the seventies was a, a really crappy time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there was some really horrible stuff going on. I remember the announcement of the end of the Vietnam war uh, not that I knew what that meant, right? But I remember hearing it on the radio. Uh, I remember the the Watergate hearings because those damn things kept preempting my afternoon cartoons after school. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was a very it, it was a time when horrible things were going on, when trust in the government was going away, and and I, you know I don't remember watch you know seeing any of the the horror show that was the Vietnam War on TV. Uh, you know, maybe my folks shielded me from that. I don't know. Or maybe they just didn't have it on. But, um, you know, Star Trek stood out as this brightly colored, adventurous, happy, yeah, sometimes dangerous, but ultimately everybody's chuckling and making fun of the Vulcan at the end of the episode. Right. <laughs> did you have uh, did you have a lot of Star Trek toys growing up? I didn't because they didn't have a lot of Star Trek toys when I was growing up. I went back and looked, you know, just preparing for uh, some of the questions I was going to ask. Uh, I went back and looked at some of the toys that were available. And a lot of them were, I don't know, just variations of other toys, you know. Like the, yeah. like you could buy a big wheel that had Star Trek written across it. and stuff. They did mm -hmm. have, you know, the Mego figures and and the, the Mego transporter that everybody's seen on uh, Big Bang Theory, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. But now I remember some of the next generation toys, but by the time those came around, I was really, I was old enough to be into Star Trek, but I was too old to be playing with toys, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's how I was with Star Wars. Star Wars hit me right at that point where, you know, I couldn't, I, I didn't have a job and I, you know, my allowance was a pittance that I, and so I couldn't go out and buy my own toys and my mom wasn't buying me toys. My mom, and, you know, I loved my mom and she did her best, but my mom was one of those people who, how do I put this gently? <laughs> I was never the way she thought I quote unquote should be. 
And I was, you know, it, I was in my 20s before she finally started giving me presents for Christmas and my birthday that I actually wanted, as opposed to things she thought I should have or right. I should want. Yeah. You know, and so I never had any of the the Star Trek action figures as much as I wanted them. Now, our friend Jay across the street or across the the the, uh, the courtyard from us, uh, he had all of them. So we would go over there and we'd play all the time with him. Right. Um, I think my mom was probably, you know, no son of mine is going to play with dolls. I don't, I don't know. I never actually talked to her about it, uh, in, in, as an adult, I did have my, my dad, actually, all of the Star Trek toys I had came from my dad and we had, he got us the Star Trek communicator walkie talkies. I don't know if you've ever seen these, but, uh, back in the seventies, you could get walkie talkies for your kids every, you know, Yeah. but this was, early in the uh in the transistor age and so they were huge they were about the size of oh looking at my desktop speakers here that would be about they're a little bit bigger than what those communicators were so we're looking at you know something that's about maybe a foot long maybe three or four inches wide about two inches thick wow uh and bright blue (laughs) with a, a plastic flip-up, you know, thing because of course it it did have to look like a communicator, but then you also had to pull out this three-foot-long antenna, <laughs> <laughs> and it had to push the talk button on the side. I th- I think that's as close as they got. Oh, I also had the phaser game, and it was a, it was essentially a flashlight shaped like a phaser, except a big bloated oversized phaser because again they didn't have things weren't small yet. Yeah. Um, and what you would do is there was a, a cardboard picture of a Klingon battlecruiser with what looked like a bike reflector on it. And you would shoot the the phaser at the reflector, and if you hit it at just the right angle, it would reflect the beam back into the gun, and it would make a noise. Yeah. Uh, and there was also, I think, a picture of a, a Mugatu, uh, which is that white, fuzzy ape monster with the horn on its head. Yeah, right. So I, we had those. There was a, a communicator base station that I, you know, I don't know where it came from, what it was supposed to be. Uh, it had blinking lights on it, and I had that for the longest time. But you know, I had that without the communicators, so it really wasn't worth much. <laughs> um, it's like having one walkie-talkie. What do you do with it? And I think that was it. A lot, you know, I spent a lot of time doodling on my notebooks and my book bags and stuff, trying to draw the Enterprise and trying to draw the the insignia and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't didn't have many of the toys because, like you said, most of the toys that were available were only vaguely Star Trek. They were something else with a Star Trek sticker put on. Like, there's this stupid helmet that you'll find. <laughs> it was it was like something out of a Godzilla movie. It was, a, it was a, a, a white plastic helmet, and it had a red rotating, like, police light type thing on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it had a chin strap, and I think it had a siren uh, in it that you push a button and it wouldn't make a siren. And then they, like, put a sticker of Mr. Spock on it, or maybe it said Spock across it or something like that. It was like absolutely nothing to do with Star Trek, but they called it Star Trek. And, you know, this was the time just before George Lucas revolutionized merchandising. You know, I don't know how many people realize, yes, Star Wars was a brilliant film. Star Wars changed the face of science fiction films forever. Right. But more than anything, George Lucas changed the face of how movies are marketed. Because while he he created, you know, he kind of struck, had had a lightning in a bottle with Star Wars. Uh, and if you want to hear me go on and on and on about Lucas and my theories about how he 
what he got right and what he got wrong. You can listen to any of my other shows. I've talked about it ad nauseum. <laughs> um, but his true genius was in realizing that if he marketed the crap out of this, he could make billions. And that's exactly what he did. He gave up. He, he told the studio, you guys can have all the profits from the movie. I want the merchandising rights. And the movie execs at the time went, sucker. Okay, <laughs> sure. Here you go. And, you know, he's laughing all the way to the bank now. Yeah. Um, Star Trek, especially, you know, Star Trek, the original series and the animated series were just before that happened. We're talking 66 to 74. Yeah, because when I was growing up in the, in the 80s, uh, every show that came out, had a whole line of toys and yeah. a lot of the car we talked about this on cosmic potato before that a lot of the cartoons that i watched were actually commercials for toys <laughs> the toys came mm -hmm. first and then the and then the cartoon and yeah when i was a kid i don't remember of course i didn't really get into star trek until i was probably uh nine ten years old when i started watching some reruns um but i don't remember seeing any star trek toys in the store in the eighties, that was at the time that they were making the movies. But before the the, the uh, next generation has started, now after next generation started and got up to season two or three, then you started seeing some next generation toys in the in the store. But they were never really big in the store, you know. When Star Trek the motion picture came out, they learned from what Lucas was doing with Star Wars, and every one of those aliens on the wreck deck in that scene, yeah, was all over. Well, I don't think Walmart was around yet, but Kmart and, and you know, C, you know the department stores were full of them. The grocery stores were full of them. AMT, the model company, put out the new Enterprise model. I must have built and ruined four of those things. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I, was, I was never very good at putting models together. <laughs> That's one thing that I do remember seeing all the time. There's always been models of ships and things like yep. that. Even yep. Even when you can't find any action figures or anything like that you'll be able to go to the model section of whatever store you're in and you'll find an enterprise or, a, or, or something, a, a bird of prey or something like that. Oh yeah. My, my favorite was always the one with Spock fighting the three headed dragon thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there, I mean, there was stuff, uh, but it didn't, you know, it didn't come out until again, there I was at the age where I'm too old for toys. I'll try to, I'll try to build these models and, and, uh, yeah, my, uh, <laughs> I finally got finished making an Enterprise model, and it had lights in it, which was really cool. Uh, and I got my folks to agree to let me hang it from the ceiling in my bedroom. Uh, but it was sort of it was a, a drop ceiling, so I had to go up into the rafters, and the the attic access. It wasn't an attic; it was it was just going up into the rafters of the roof. Yeah. And the access was on the other side of the house in the hallway, and so I had to go up there. And now this is Florida. And this is Florida. Let's see. It came out in December. So it might have been, it might have still been cool. Uh, might have been January, February. So I mean, but usually it's like about 150 degrees up in the rafters of, yeah. of the house in Florida. I managed to, you know, I'm crawling through the joists of the roof because there's no, there's no plywood or anything to crawl across. And I was doing a, I, I was doing great. And we got the ship hung. And it was hanging up over my bed, and it looked awesome. And I was trying; I was heading back, and I slipped, and went right through the ceiling oh, wow. of my bedroom, <laughs> and managed to drop the tiles right on top of my mom. Oh! <laughs> and for the longest time, there was just a hole in the roof in my bedroom. And then yeah. Before they finally, we finally got it fixed. But uh, I'd actually forgotten about that story until just now. Uh, there is one thing I'd like to I'd like to mention about Star Trek okay. that uh, is is a, a little more pithy. Uh, 
a little more adult, uh, and not in that way, dirty-minded <laughs> creeps out there. Uh, no, I, I was in the Air Force. I did one term in the Air Force in my uh, mid-20s. There was a, a an, uh, an incident that happened. I uh, uh, How do I put that? Okay. My particular specialty was communication and navigation systems. And so the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with the way the military is set up, at least in the Air Force, I don't, I'm not sure how the other branches do it. You go to basic training, and while you're in basic training, you pick several specialties that you would like to do. And they're, you, know, rank, you rank them, and of course they always say, you know, the needs of the Air Force come first, so you may or may not get any of these. But uh, my SAT scores were good enough that I pretty much got to pick what I wanted to do. And I picked electronics, and it was communication and navigation systems. Uh, once you leave basic training, then you go to tech school. And various specialties have longer or shorter tech schools. Uh, the electronics tech schools were uh, tech training was at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, and ComNav, which is what we call our uh, communication navigation, was the second longest time there. So some people were only there for a few weeks. Some people were there for a few months. I was there for most of a year. Yeah. And so by the time I was done there, I had pretty much reached the top of the student leadership. Uh, you know, I was, I don't want to say I was in command of my squadron because I, I wasn't, you know, I was still a student, so we couldn't be in command, but I was as close to, uh, being a student commander as you could get. And there was a, we, we shared our squadron with, uh, the base, um, uh, drill team and they won a big, a, a big competition, big drill team competition. And there was a big party. Uh, we did a lot of big parties, <laughs> <laughs> but after that party, some, some, uh, some stuff happened and I don't remember the details of it. We're talking 20 years ago. Yeah. Essentially the entire squadron got punished and I went to our, our actual commander, the sergeant in charge of our squadron. Um, and I objected and he's, he was like, uh, you know, I said, you know, it, uh, we don't feel like it's fair that, that we get punished for what they did. Yeah. And he said, well, I'm sorry. That's too bad. That's, you know, that's the way it is. And I started to leave and he, and he stopped and he said, do you have a problem with that? And, and I stopped and in the back of my mind, I heard Star Trek music <laughs> and I thought about how Kirk always put his crew above every other consideration. And I know it sounds corny and I know it sounds cheesy and I, you know, it's, this was less an actual progression of thoughts in my mind than it was just this was so ingrained in me that it, it was almost more a matter of here's a chance to be Kirk like right and I turned around and I said yes sir I do have a problem with this my people did not commit these these offenses we do not deserve the punishment and he said all right um, I tell you what we'll do this and if your people uh, are you know meet this minimum requirement they will not be subjected to this to this group punishment and i walked out of there and i was like that was the first time that something from star trek had a practical application in my life yeah. and it was such a cool way to do it uh and i was i it just rather than be proud of my i, I was i was proud of myself for standing up for for my 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 squadron mates but it was also just it was so cool that this show that I had been ridiculed for loving all my life, because again, people today, especially young people today, uh, 
I don't know if they realize that the stereotype of the of the bullied nerd and the uh, is true. Yeah. You know, it's cool to it's cool to be into geeky stuff now. Star Trek has become mainstream. It's become, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. But when I was 10 years old in in 5th grade and and our my teacher my English teacher or, you know, whatever it was called said that uh you know, they were looking for people to dress up as literary characters for Library Appreciation Day or something, and they want you know they wanted people to to dress up like someone from a book, and uh, and give a short little uh, you know speech to the class about who they are and why they should read this book. And I was like, Star Trek is in books, yeah. and so I <laughs> I made myself. I had this yellow turtleneck shirt, uh, and I made a cardboard insignia that I you know I, I taped to my shirt. Uh, and I remember just being absolutely terrified, but getting up there and saying, you know, my name is Captain Kirk and, and I'm, you know, and I don't even remember what I said beyond that. But, you know, I, I was laughed at. I was beaten up for being a Star Trek nerd. And so that moment where being a Star Trek fan paid off in a big way, it, it it's one of those moments that I keep in my mental wallet. Yeah. You know, you have. You have moments in your life that you just every now and then you just kind of think back on it. And instead of thinking back on, you know, oh, that time I said that stupid thing to that person and why won't my brain forget it? Uh, here here was a, a good thing that I could think back and go, Star Trek gave me something yeah, that I could use and I could use in a, in a positive way. And I think there's a, a, a million little ways that being a Star Trek fan has made me a better person. And that's, you know, one of the more obvious ways. But. There are, you know, Richard Smith from Simply Syndicated half jokingly uh, has said for years that uh, being a Star Trek fan almost automatically makes you a good person. Yeah. And I don't think that's very far from true because it's hard to really like Star Trek and stay a selfish person. Right. And I think selfishness is one of the worst problems we have today. Is that's one of the rampant problems. And Star Trek has always been about thinking beyond ourselves and reaching out and helping and trying to be better and trying to be our best selves. If that's if I got that from Star Trek and if I'm able to live that and impart that to my family, then it's Star Trek has been a success in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean my my story mirrors a lot of that and i was bullied a lot in school as well you know um i was overweighted you know like you were saying uh for yourself star trek was kind of like and i'm mostly talking about the next generation when i felt like i didn't really have any friends at school star trek was those those people were my friends you know yep um and i i really i really felt that way because i knew that no matter how bad of a day that I had at school, I could go home and I could watch Star Trek. It, it came on every night. I would go home and I would watch Star Trek. And for that hour, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. I didn't have to worry about being picked on or, or anything like that. You know, it's just, just me, those stories and, and those characters. And then I got into the next generation novels. And so when I wasn't watching Star Trek, I was reading Star Trek. That's, very much what this podcast is about, you know, it's just people, it's more than a show to, to, to us, you know, it's not just a TV show that we watch once a week or once a day or whatever. It's actually something that we feel has made our lives better, that has taught us things. And, you know, it's just, it, 
it's just a part of our life. You know, it's it's a way of our life. But yeah, exactly. But I wanted to ask you about so when you were say I guess thirteen, fourteen, when you found out that they were going to make the motion picture, how did you feel? <laughs> because uh, I'm sure by that time, I'm I don't know if you stayed a rabid Star Trek fan all the way up until I think when the film came out in '79. Mm-hmm. Or oh, if absolutely. or if your fandom had waned any, you know, but never. okay. Well, when the it movie never wavered. <laughs> uh, when they announced that Star Trek the motion picture was, co- I'm getting chills thinking about it. Yeah, uh, I remember the first time I saw that rainbow poster. You know, the 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 rainbow yeah, street yeah, yeah. with the pictures of of Kirk, Spock, and and uh, Ilea, I think, and, and yeah. the Enterprise. I, I can I'm, again, literally, I'm getting chills thinking about it. I could not wait. I was ecstatic. And I still remember the first time I saw the movie. It took it took me four viewings, and of course, you know, again, we're talking pre-internet, pre-video, so it was four times going to the movie theater, four yeah. times making my mom take me to the movie theater, right? <laughs> um, four times standing in line for that thing because you know this this was I think the I think the movie theater, the Village Green movie theater. I remember it well. It's a it's a Best Buy now, <laughs> but uh, you know the the line went around the building the first time I saw it, and they had they had big posters, you know, big big pictures in, uh, of the Enterprise in the lobby. I even bought a cutaway picture of the new Enterprise that was on my bedroom wall for years. And it took me four times watching that movie before I realized how boring it was. <laughs> but the first time we saw the Enterprise. Seeing her in such detail and, you know, 30 feet long, uh, you know, on the on the movie screen and just I am I am one of the few people in the world who thinks that that overly long Enterprise flyby scene is too short. (laughs) I could I could happily add another five minutes of just looking at that ship, which I ultimately realized that was the big problem with the movie was that I was the ship was way more way cooler than any of the the relationships right. yeah um and, and that's why you know i kept buying and building and ruining the the models because that the enterprise and you know we'll call it the enterprise a for for clarification purposes but it wasn't the a yet uh but the the, the refit it was it was just beautiful and we had never seen anything like that because even watching star trek even when we got uh, you know, a, a decent TV. I don't, we didn't get cable at home until the early eighties. Yeah. Uh, and so I, you know, I never saw Star Trek and anything resent, coming close to the clarity we saw it in the movie theater. And so I was just blown away by how gorgeous the ship was and how big the ship was. And, and, you know, the scene where they're walking on the hull, uh, you know, and the, the, the bridge, you know, yeah, it got better by by the time of Wrath of Khan. They did, you know, they made the interiors a bit more, a bit warmer and a bit more, uh, more welcoming. But there was nothing about the next about the uh, the motion picture visually and design wise that I didn't absolutely adore. Yeah, I, I think you know, I, I asked you before what your earliest memory of Star Trek was, and actually, I, my earliest vivid memory. You know, I, I know that Star Trek was on in the background when I was a kid. My earliest vivid memory of star trek was watching um or my parents were watching star trek 2 on te- on tv you know it was when it when it aired uh, um yeah and i didn't watch the whole movie with them but i remember coming in 
and sitting down uh, right before I was supposed to go to bed, and they were watching the scene where uh, where Spock died. Like I said, I had seen Star Trek in the background. I knew who Kirk and Spock were. I didn't. When I saw him die, I was like, I thought he was like one of the main guys. Why? Why are they <laughs> killing him? You know. And then my dad just kind of says offhand, "Ah, oh, he comes back to life in the next one." I was like, "Really?" You know. <laughs> so, 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 uh, I I made my mom take me to the video store the next weekend, and I rented. I wanted to watch him in order, you know. So I rented the motion picture, and I rented uh, Star Trek Two, and took him home and watched him. And the first, I remember watching the first one. And it's not a bad movie, but it's not a kid's movie, you know. It's no, it's no. very it's very slow, you know. So if you're ten years old and you're watching this thinking you're gonna see Star Wars, you know, which I always hate the do you like Star Trek or do you like Star Wars kind of thing because they, they don't really compare. They're not. They're no, not even no, they're very similar. very different. Yeah. So. But when you see something that's supposed to be science fiction, you're 10 years old, you're thinking you're going to see something that's like Star Wars, and then you pop it in, and it's the motion picture, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I had an uncle that was really big in the Star Trek, and he had all the books, and he let me borrow the book, the novelization of the motion picture, and I got maybe three pages into it. Because <laughs> if, if you think the movie was boring, then try and read the book. <laughs> yeah, I... I... I read it. I don't remember much about it uh, other than it explaining what those belt buckle things were. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Gene, it, it, supposedly Gene Roddenberry wrote it. I have my doubts about that. Yeah, Ghost Rider. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was not a good book. <laughs> you know, I and you've heard me say this before uh, in other areas, but uh, if you are somebody listening to this right now, and you're a Star Trek fan, but you just at, you, you you know you you're still saying Star Trek the motionless picture, uh, you know, or saying you know keeping it at the towards the bottom of the list. Get the Blu-ray or get the DVD and watch it with the director's commentary on, because listening to Robert Wise uh, talk about his experiences with making that movie, uh, and there's also Stephen Collins who you know before we knew he was a pedophile, yeah. <laughs> one of the uh, commentators also uh john dykstra who did a lot of the special effects is one uh, is part of the commentary as well listen to that you owe it to yourself as a star trek fan to understand why the motion picture ended up being the way it is and while it doesn't make sitting through it any easier where you know whereas the fast forward button really helps a lot on that one it made me a lot more understanding and helped me to watch it with a much more generous mindset because you know things like the studio wouldn't budge on the premiere date even though wise was brought in way late into the process and he was literally carrying a still wet from the developers print to the gala premiere in hollywood mm -hmm. uh, he never had a chance to do test audiences to to fine-tune it to even get a final real edit on the movie so the fact that it's as coherent as it is is kind of a miracle. Yeah. So I've I've learned to love TMP over the years. Star Trek Five, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, that's another story. But <laughs> but that okay. So that movie came out in 1979, and then uh, three more movies came out in pretty tight releases because by by the time we got to 1984, we were already at Star Trek Four, I believe. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to fast forward to 1987 when you find out that they're going to come out with a new series. So how did you Grr. feel? How did you feel when you found out about the next generation? <laughs> I was at that point in my life where I was an opinionated butthole. <laughs> of course, I got over that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, at the time, I was very much, uh, if it's not Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and if it's not Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly, I want nothing to do with it. You know, at the time, uh, a friend of mine, shortly after the, the movie came, or not the shortly after TNG started, uh, he actually got his hands on a studio. I don't know if it was a studio used or if it was a really good replica, but it was a com badge from TNG. One of the, and it was like the same com badge that they used on the show. Yeah. And I kept that thing in a drawer for years and never really appreciated it as uh, until many, many years later, once I finally, you know, loved the show. And then I brought it out, but then it, you know, it was all scratched up, and and uh, and then eventually it got broken. Uh, but I wore it on my on my jean jacket forever. Once I finally stopped hating the show, <laughs> I was I was dead set against it. Uh, you know, I hate to keep reiterating this, but but folks listening, uh, especially if you're younger, you you need to understand that in the in the pre-internet days, we pretty much had to rely on on newspaper articles and Starlog magazine to get any information on what was happening. You couldn't just, you know, even the library wasn't much help because yeah. the, the you know, this was all new stuff. And so everything I saw in Starlog and and in the occasional interview uh or or news uh report, I didn't like. I didn't like the uniforms. I still don't like the Enterprise D. I never liked that ship from the exterior design. The yeah. inter interior was fine, but the exterior I've always hated. Yeah. And then Encounter at Farpoint came out, and it is a deeply flawed bit of television, you know, even today. You know, and it's it's kind of a, a given that the first two seasons of TNG aren't very good. Yeah. It there it's not as bad as I thought I remembered it because I've just recently been uh, done a rewatch of the of TNG. And rewatched most of seasons one and two. Some of them I couldn't bear, <laughs> like, like Matter of Honor or Code of Honor. The, the uh, yeah. that one I just couldn't. I just couldn't deal with it. And season two wasn't as bad as I had remembered. You know, and Pulaski wasn't as bad as I remembered. I actually kind of liked her this time around. But yeah, I was very much against it. And then Encounter at Farpoint, to me, proved my point that Star Trek without Kirk and Spock is not Star Trek. His encounter at Farpoint, I'm sorry, is pretty bad. Yeah, they almost messed up with that because that that particular episode was only supposed to be an hour long. And, yeah, they, and they yeah. wrote more into it to make it two hours, and the, that's where the the whole Q storyline wasn't even supposed to be there originally. And so, um, the only reason that it really that it really took off was because they gave it to all these uh, syndicated markets for free. You know, you can run this show without, you don't have to pay us anything for it. And so it ran everywhere, you know, and, yep. and multiple times, <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, I was, I'm surprised that it made it to season three. If it had been made now, it wouldn't have. Oh, no way. Yeah, no because way. they wouldn't have made it past season one. Yeah, they don't, they don't give things the uh the chance that they used to you know used to a show could last three or four years with nobody watching it <laughs> and yeah. and it would and it would stick around and uh but but now yeah you 
you have three or four episodes and nobody's watching it and it's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's also the fact that Nielsen ratings back then were far more guesswork than actual science, whereas nowadays you can track with great accuracy how many times the show is is viewed. Yeah. Uh, so and there, you know, there there has always been and always will be a diehard core of Star Trek fans who don't really care about the quality. If it's Star Trek, they'll watch it. Yeah. And I used to kind of disdain people like that, but now in hindsight, I really wish I had been a person like that. I wish I had paid more attention to TNG uh, at first, because once it hooked me, once season three kicked in. I was I was totally on board. Right. Uh, I at <laughs> the 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 cliffhanger end of Best of Both Worlds Part One. Yeah. I was throwing things at the TV. <laughs> I was screaming, "No, you can't do that to me!" <laughs> <laughs> um, and now I think you know, Next Generation for all of its flaws, and uh, you know I think it's some of the some of the best Star Trek ever yeah. is, is in Next Gen. Um, so. Yeah, I just it just took me a while to to come on board, and that's why I was a little more forgiving with DS Nine, because uh, you know DS 9s first season is pretty dire as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I you know I was a lot more more willing to accept Deep Space Nine, and I it, there were certain aspects of it that I didn't like. I I was always more of a Roddenberry purist than most, uh, and Deep Space Nine was very much antithetical to most of what Roddenberry was trying to do. But in later years, I've come to find out that a lot of the best Star Trek happened once Roddenberry was no longer in the, yeah. you know, in the mix. Right. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, his his, you know, season one of TNG was almost all him, and it's not very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Deep Space Nine had a lot. It had a lot of hurdles to overcome because, number one, it was it was the first series that Roddenberry was not in charge of from at the very beginning anyway. Uh, and, and number two, it was the first Star Trek series that was not on a ship. You know, yeah. it was, it was on a space station. So instead of being wagon train to the stars, it was going to be, you know, the rifleman in space. <laughs> yeah. 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 And all the action was going to come to them. And, uh, yeah. and, and we were all, we were all worried how it was going to work out. I remember when I heard that there was going to be a Ferengi as a main character. I was like, "Are you effing kidding me?" Yeah, yeah. A Ferengi? <laughs> yeah. And they did the whole thing where you know uh, shows. I guess they still do it now, but when a show gets a spinoff, they usually keep one character from the old series and bring them over. And I remember thinking, "Why Chief O'Brien? He's the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know why not somebody more uh, uh, a main part of TNG or something. Chief O'Brien is just kind of, he's the guy that stands at the transporter controls, but, <laughs> but it worked out, you know, he, he was, he was, he was a pretty good character, but, uh, I remember I was watching, um, uh, the episode of deep space nine that Q was on. It was, it's a first season episode. Um, and, yeah, uh, I remember you posting that the other day. Yeah. And, uh, there's a scene where, uh, Chief O'Brien, says something to Q and Q looks at him and he says, do I know you? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm miles O'Brien from the enterprise. He says, Oh yeah. Were you one of the little people <laughs> <laughs> as a Star Trek fan? We're all constantly exposed to little tidbits of philosophy and lessons and things like that. So 
What do you think Star Trek, which you, you talked about this a little bit before, but what do you think Star Trek did for you that's made your life better? It gave me a moral center. It showed me that humanity is not just redeemable, but noble or can be. One of the things I've always appreciated about Star Trek is they, some people like to criticize Star Trek for being overly optimistic. Uh, for being unrealistically optimistic. But Star Trek has never made any any bones about the fact that the world of the 23rd and 24th century that we know in Star Trek grew out of the bones and ashes of World War III. Yeah. Uh, and in DS9, we see even more, uh, you know, horrible, bad times from the early early by Star Trek standards, our future by our standards. Um, it shows that humanity had to fall before it could rise from the ashes of its own failures. And so I think rather than being, you know, Pollyanna-ishly, that's a word, <laughs> optimistic <laughs> in that, you know, here is this utopian future where everything is puppies and rainbows and nobody is, is miserable. Uh, and it just sort of happened. It shows that even though we can stumble, even though we can fall, even though we can screw up in titanic ways, we will overcome that and we will become the self-actualized noble race that we that is our birthright. Because we are not just petty animals scrabbling around for pieces of paper and small metal discs. Yeah. We are the pinnacle of evolution and and science and learning and and uh altruism and even though we even then we screw up even though we make mistakes even then we stumble and there's there's always going to be the bad seed there's always going to be the guy that can't fit in or the or the the woman who who refuses to accept what's freely available to everyone uh, or the race that can't stand how beneficial our life is, and so they've got to fight us, you know, fight us for whatever. Even though all of these things will still exist, because we're still human beings in the 23rd century, it's going to get better. It's going to be a future worth trying to build, worth trying to strive for. And while some podcasts that I really enjoy kind of make fun of this, the 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 mindset of having things handed to you doesn't accomplish anything. You've got to work for it. You've got to strive to achieve. And if progress isn't being made, then something's wrong. Yeah. And if things are too good, then maybe you need to find out why. And you need to find that adversity because, you know, it, a piece of, of iron doesn't become steel without being forged in flame. And then beaten into submission. And that's probably a terrible metaphor. But, um, you know, only through perseverance and only through striving to be better can we become better. Um, and I know that today, if you look at the political landscape and you look at, at uh, racial relations and, and uh, you know, the rights for the, for the, the, the least of us, it's a scary time right now. It's so easy to get depressed. It's so easy to get angry. I 
been, you know, all over Facebook in the past couple of days just railing against things. But when I stop and I take a deep breath and I think about how we just put, an, uh, uh, you know, uh, a thing the size of a school bus, we just threw it from our planet five years ago and it's now in orbit around Jupiter. Yeah. And last year, a 10-year-long journey showed us what Pluto looks like for the first time in the history of mankind. And there are chunks of metal and plastic with friendship messages leaving the solar system, even as we speak, that were launched shortly after I was born. And I see stuff like that, and I say, you know what? We are capable of looking at the big picture. We are capable of reaching the stars someday. And while I don't think some aspects of Star Trek will ever be possible because it's a TV show and it is, uh, you know, it is a fictional universe. Yeah. So transporters and warp drive may or may, you know, probably not. But the mindset and the philosophy of the Federation of Idic of you may be multicolored with a tail and gills and scales and stuff, but you're still my brother. Yeah. That mindset is in the heart, is at the base of humanity. And what Star Trek showed me is that while, yes, we are a dangerously aggressive race sometimes, we are also the noblest of creatures. And I, I have to believe that that's the part of us that will survive. So Star Trek hasn't been in um, a regular series run, and I guess it's been more than 10 years since Enterprise went off the air. Yep. Do you feel like something is missing from your life because there's not any new Star Trek episodes? Almost every Wednesday. Well, not every Wednesday, but Wednesday used to be Star Trek night. Uh, DS9 was on Wednesdays where I where I lived. Uh, we used to get together to watch Voyager on Wednesdays. Yeah. Um, absolutely. There are times when uh, it's it's usually on a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday night, and I'll be like. I'll feel myself anticipating something and it's, it's not, it's on a, a subconscious level. And then I'll realize what it is. I'll be like, Oh, it's Wednesday and we're not going over to Kim and Todd's house to watch Voyager. Yeah. And you know, that's what almost 15 years ago. Right. <laughs> um, but that feeling is still there. Yes. I absolutely miss having Star Trek on TV because as fun as the movies have been for the most part, Star Trek does not excel on the big screen. It's great to see the, sh the special effects and the ships and all of that stuff. But Star Trek is at its best when it can, when it has the luxury of exploring issues that don't involve high explosions right. <laughs> or high yeah. explosives. Uh, and with movies, it has to be, you know, it's, it's, you know, one and done. You've got to grab as many people as you can and make that buck and make those millions back and, and satisfy the shareholders, et cetera, blah, 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 the whole Hollywood mechanic uh, machine. On a TV show, now granted this new one that's coming up next year is only going to be 13 episodes, but that's still 13 episodes. So even if a third of them are less about jumping motorcycles over aliens and more about let's let's look at some of the more uh you know more subtle societal issues which has always been where star trek has excelled hasn't always succeeded in the subtle part yeah um but star trek has always been a vehicle for exploring the human condition 
and what's going on. You know, uh, there's a there's a kind of a, a, a mythical belief that Roddenberry was doing social commentary and hiding it from the network because it was science fiction. They knew what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were not that stupid. Uh, but it was as long as he wasn't trying to say, you know, as long as he wasn't being in your face saying this episode is Vietnam. Um, <laughs> even though it was so very clearly Vietnam, yeah. the, the network was like, that's fine. You know, you want to address these issues, go ahead. Um, you know, they had other things to worry about. As long as the sponsors keep writing checks. <laughs> exactly. Know. Yeah. Um, so that is where Star Trek really, that's, that's where it fulfills its purpose uh, beautifully is on TV where they have the time and the luxury to explore issues as well as action, as well as blow them up. Because that's fine, too. Wrath of Khan is, I think, the perfect Star Trek film because you have the the issues of aging and revenge and regret and paths not taken. And then you also have some of the most amazing spaceship battles ever filmed. Yeah. It can be both. and But, it you know, unfortunately, film... Movies today have become such money, money pits, money generate, whatever. You know, when you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars on, at, you know, at risk, they they have to play it safe. You're not going to see a Wrath of Khan anymore because that was kind of risky, and it was also done for practically nothing by movie standards. Yeah, yeah. And how many how many big movies do you have like that where the the hero and the villain? are never in the same room together Yeah, in the entire yeah. movie, you know, and it's still a good movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that next generation, uh, even when they were doing their run of movies, they tried to do, you know, insurrection, they tried to slow down a little bit and do a movie that's a little closer to what an episode of the series might've looked like, you know, without as, as, as without the big, you know, explodey, set pieces and everything they had some of that but most of the movie kind of slowed down and really you know i enjoyed that movie you know i've got problems with it obviously but but it it doesn't succeed in the box office you know so they're not going to keep making that kind of movie that's why the next movie was nemesis you know which had all the the sci-fi explodey scenes and stuff like that and and also ended up being the last one in the series (laughs) Yeah, and rightfully so. I yeah. I enjoyed Insurrection. For the, yeah, I also had there were some problems with it, but yeah, I thought Nemesis was terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the scene where uh, in Nemesis where they, uh, I don't know what they called that vehicle. Obviously, they were they wanted to make a toy. Oh, of it. the dune buggy. Oh, yeah. yeah, and they jumped it off that cliff and 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 caught it in the back of the shuttle. Yeah, ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah. So, um, in order to to get back to the feeling that you had before, what do you think Star Trek needs to do? What what do you, what do you hope? I guess the obvious question would be, with the new series that's coming up in January, what do you hope to get out of that show that will take you back to the way you used to feel about Star Trek? I I, I want to see good storytelling. Yeah, I want to see compelling characters. I want to see thought. Star Trek has always, in in my opinion, has been its best when it inspires thought. You know, there are there are tropes about Star Trek that 
you know, are kind of running jokes, especially among people who have never actually watched it. You know, if you if you watch the original series, you'll find out that Kirk was not the I'm going to try to bang every woman that comes under the Enterprise Lothario. He was much more thoughtful. Uh, you know, you know, we tend to, to just kind of reduce things to Picard talks Kirk shot. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that's not true. If you if you watch watch the original series and see that the shoot first, ask questions later mentality was never there in Kirk. Uh, the caricaturish stuff they've been doing in the in the uh, in the uh, what are they calling it now? The Kelvin timeline movies. Yeah. Uh, where you know a woman walks by Kirk and he breaks off the conversation to turn around and stare at her. Because the only thing J.J. Abrams knows about Star Trek are the jokes he's heard. You know, that's the kind of stuff I want to see go away. I want to see real people doing real stuff just in a in a Star Trek context. Um, I I will be disappointed if it's set in the J.J. verse. Uh, I'll be surprised actually, and then disappointed. But I'm also willing to give it a shot if that's what it if that's what it is. If the stories are good. Because that's what's saved the the two J.J. Abrams movies, in my opinion, because almost all of the design aspects of of them I loathe. Uh, not just dislike, I hate the new Enterprise. Yeah. The phasers are ridiculous. The uniforms are hideous. Uh, the The interior of the ship is just appalling. It, it, you know, I could go on and on and on because, uh, you know, I've gotten past my uh, opinionated obnoxious statement. <laughs> But the characters were magnificent. Uh, you know, Chris Pine nails Kirk. Uh, Zachary Quinto Spock is amazing. And Carl Urban, uh, Carl Urban is just, you know, that man can do anything. Yeah. Um, so it is possible to take a, a terrible setting and still do good Star Trek. So while I really want to see it set in the prime universe uh, when in the prime universe I don't really care you know people are getting you know the, the speculation on it is running you know fast and thick uh, as to when it's going to be set where it's going to be set what ship what ships uh, you know I really don't care about any of that stuff as long as, as it's one it's Star Trek and by that I mean uh, you know we have a prime directive. We have a set of, of guidelines that uh, that we've grown accustomed to over the past 50 years. You know, it's a universe we're familiar with. Uh, and most of us, well, I don't know if you could sit down and say, you know, define what is Star Trek? You know, and I, I, I've been kind of wrestling with this thought because I've been wanting to do some podcasts along the, that line about what exactly is Star Trek? It, it's kind of like that line about from the from the Supreme Court about obscenity. I don't know what what obscenity is, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> um, you know, if what they do is true to the the spirit of Star Trek, I'll be along for the ride. Uh, if it's just going to be trying to cash in on the name and just sort of giving it the trappings of Star Trek like uh, a certain fan film that came out recently uh, that had a lot of Star Trek alums in it, but the story was anything but Star Trek, um, <laughs> you know, then I will be, I will be upset. Uh, 
Well, no, yeah, I'll be upset. Uh, because as you may have guessed from, <laughs> from the monologues I've done on this show, uh, Star Trek means a lot to me. Yeah. And I have gone from, you know, it. thou shalt not mess with the Holy Trinity to, okay, I'm down with whatever the producers of Star Trek 1 do as long as they treat it with the respect it's due. Because you can say it's just a TV show. You can joke and, you know, say, hey, Trek fans get a life. But this show has meant so much more to so many people than just something to watch on Saturday mornings. Yeah. You know, uh, it has been a major part of my life for my entire life. I'm one year older than Star Trek. Uh, or, well, two years older than Star Trek. Uh, so I have never really known in my conscious life a time that the show did not exist. Yeah. And the fact that we're still talking about this show 50 years later, the fact they're still making movies and they're, you know, we've got a new TV series coming out. This is more than just a TV show. This is a cultural phenomenon. And it needs to be treated not necessarily with reverence. You know, we can have fun with it. Uh, but treat it with respect and do it right. Yeah. And I'll be happy. All right. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to wrap it up. So, um, Rick, I appreciate you being here with me tonight. I, I appreciate your having me on. Any chance to talk Trek, I'll, I'll jump at it. And this was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That Star Trek Podcast. You can contact us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can send us an email at thatstartrekpodcast at gmail.com. Help the show grow by giving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Be sure to join us again next time on That Star Trek Podcast, 